Amen, amen. It's so good to see all of you again. I have missed you guys every Tuesday night. My wife, Taylor, and I, we just sat like in our living room and just cried together all night long waiting. That was a lie, okay? Now you guys gave me sympathy. Now I feel bad. I lied. That's not what happened. We probably were watching Parks and Rec. But anyways, so, but I have missed you guys so much over this past month. For those of you that went to Winter Conference, it was an incredible time to watch God move, and it was so much fun. And didn't our worship team kill it at Winter Conference? Let's give them a celebration. Come on. For those of you that are new, Winter Conference was just this weekend, this past weekend, where we went into a conference with other Chi Alphas around the Midwest, and we got to just run after Jesus and have a lot of fun together. Next year, you can be there, and it'll be fun. So that'll be cool. But for those of you that are new, I am excited that you decided to join us. It's a new semester. Maybe you're a new student here at UNI. I think God wants to do something powerful in your life. I don't think you transferred here by accident. I don't think for those of you that are new who have been UNI students, you're here by accident. I think God has a purpose and a plan for you. There's a reason you're here at 8 o'clock at night on your first day of classes, because God wants to do something in your life. For those of you that are new to you and I, I'm really glad you decided to be a panther or a red tail or a working class citizen in the city of Cedar Falls. So that's good. If this is your first time, I would love to meet you after service. My name is Derek, by the way. And also don't, be, don't forget to go out and get a t-shirt and give our Connect team a nice high five. They'll also give you a Bible if you want one. Amen and amen. Tonight we are going to start our new sermon series entitled Formed. We are all in this process of being formed or shaped or molded. We are ever-changing, and each of us is formed by something. We've been deeply formed by our parents, our upbringing, our time in high school, our friends. Those things have molded us into becoming the person we are. Craig Rochelle, who's a pastor, says that you are the average of your five closest friends because they shape you. That's probably why you dress, act, talk pretty similarly to the people that you spend a lot of time with. Not only are we shaped by our origins, we are also being shaped every single day. Social media shapes us. Influencers' goal is to influence us or change us. We are shaped into wearing different clothes, talking differently, having different hobbies. Social media is literally designed to create an algorithm to get you to look at more ads and buy more things. That's why it exists. Not only does social media form us, though, we are formed by entertainment. An example of this for me, when I was in the ninth grade, I started reading and watching the Hunger Games books and movies. Oh, everyone's like, oh, mad at me. Anyways, so quickly after I was watching the, the movie, I was at a garage sale, and something caught my eye. I saw a bow. And in that moment, I realized my new calling. I was called to be an archer and to slay my enemies with a bow and arrow, just like Katniss Everdeen. So I bought that bow. I never bought arrows, so I never actually used it. It still hangs in my parents' garage literally 15 years later. But anyways, I was formed by Katniss Everdeen to think that I am a hunter, and I'm not a hunter at all. I can't, like, I can't ride a bike, let alone shoot a bow and arrow. Anyways, I have tried not to say that from the pulpit, I just did. Anyways, cheers. Think about your favorite TV show, your favorite movie. I bet you quote them a lot because they formed you. Sometimes it's a very good thing. For example, let's say your friends all start working out and doing CrossFit together, and they get you to do it with them. That's a good thing, because you're being formed positively to getting healthier. But this can also be negative. Let's say, for example, on the TV shows and movies you watched growing up, the way that you saw college students seem to be happy was they were going out, getting drunk, hooking up, doing this weekend after weekend. So you became hardwired to this idea that the key to the college experience is that you must become this partying person. And then you come to college, 
And not because of your own actual deep desires to go do those things, but rather because of the influence of media, you decide to go out party and kind of run away from God. Put yourself in compromising situations that are not good for your soul, your health, academics, or really anything, all because of movies you watched growing up. For me, this TV show was this show I really hope you've never heard of called Degrassi. That was, uh, yeah, yeah, the weirdos in the room said, yes, I've seen it. It was really bad. They like would like punch each other in the middle of high school classrooms. Anyways, that formed me to think high school would be way more intense than it actually was. But see, we think we have complete control over our lives and ourselves, but this is, to be honest, false. We are constantly being kind of manipulated by the world around us, forming us into an individual person. And I want you to reflect and think if you're honest with yourself, are you the person you want to be? Are you the Jesus follower you want to be? And if not, you need to ask yourself, well, what formed you to be the person you are? We're going to spend these next few weeks dissecting what this looks like and how we can be formed into the person that we want to become. If you are a Jesus follower here tonight, that means you want to be formed into the image of God because that is our main goal as disciples of King Jesus is to look like him. We are called to be formed by Jesus to look more like Jesus. Tonight we're going to be looking at a story from the very beginning of Jesus' time in ministry. Jesus was around 30 years old when he started his time in ministry. This is important to note. He was not 17. He wasn't like 9. He wasn't 25. He waited 30 years to start doing his calling. So for those of you that are 16 and single or 18 and single, you're doing okay. You'll find your spouse. I promise you it's not too early. Jesus took 30 years to find his job. And see, when Jesus starts spending time recruiting his disciples, he starts doing some miracles. He starts making a name for himself. He's getting a little famous, and he proclaims that the kingdom of God is here. And we pick up on this story from the very early on in his ministry, from Mark 1, 35 through 39. It says, And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he, as in Jesus, departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon, that's one of his disciples, and those who were with him were searching for him. And they found him and said, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, well, let us go on to the next town that I may preach there also, for this is why I came out. And he went through all of Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. God, I pray that you speak to us tonight, Jesus, and that everything we do is to look more and more like you. We love you so much. Amen. Amen. This past summer, my wife Taylor and I, we went to London and Paris for a vacation. And right outside of London is this thing called Warner Brothers Studios, where it's where they filmed all eight Harry Potter movies. And now you can go and visit and see everything you could ever imagine. Like, they've got, like, goblin faces that they've, like, taken off of the bodies. It's really weird, to be honest. Anything you could ever dream of is at this place for Harry Potter. And Taylor is a huge Harry Potter fan. She's read all, bo- all the books eight times. And she even dressed up as Hermione Granger for the premiere of one of the books or movies. Can we see that? That is her. Uh, I didn't ask her permission to show that. Uh, that's nice. That's my bride. Cheers. Anyways. All right. Before we went to London, Taylor and I were in the kitchen, and she said, I don't even know what would be the point in going to London if we don't get to go to the Harry Potter tour. And then I'm like, girl, I haven't booked tickets to the Harry Potter tour, and I've been working on this vacation for like six months. So I'm a little stressed because I'm like, i got to do this now. So I get online, and the tickets are all sold out. So then I start investigating. I'm on a mission because my wife needs to see weird Harry Potter memorabilia and like touch Hermione Granger's cloth. It's really, again, it was a really weird place. But anyways, so I go to get tickets. 
I look on different websites. I can't find them there. So I go, I'm going to do this. So I go on the dark web. I'm like looking, how can I do it? I will sell anything. My soul, if I need to sell that for these tickets, we'll make it happen. And eventually, I find a way for us to get tickets through spending way too much money through this private transportation place. So they're going to pick us up on the morning of our anniversary and take us there. It was perfect. And I didn't tell Taylor any of this because I'm smooth and she didn't know we were going to do this. I'm like, all right, I'm going to surprise her. I'll be Mr. Superhusband for the day. And so we go out that morning. We go to this weird church thing to tour. And then I smoothly get us to this city square where we're going to get picked up. And I'm like, all right, where's the guy with my name on it? On like a piece of picture. Don't find him. All right, can't see that. So I start looking for like buses maybe. I don't, because I have no idea what's going to pick us up. And fun fact you have to pay extra money to have service when you're in a different country, and I'm cheap, so I didn't want to do that. So my phone was not usable. So I'm looking around, and 10, 20, 30 minutes pass. I can't find this car. I'm starting to freak out, and Taylor's like, why are we still in this city square? This is really weird. And I'm like, don't worry about it, babe. It's going to be perfect. This is what we're supposed to do. God has called us. No, I shouldn't say that. That's bad. So then I start... I don't know if you've ever seen these in London, like the red telephone booths things. I think Doctor Who or something used them. Like, like, maybe these things actually work. I open the door, start clicking. They don't actually work. So that was a fun thing to learn. I leave getting stressed, and then I decide to buck up, spend money to roam. So I get my phone, and I call the place. And they're like, oh, a Tesla has been waiting for you. And it couldn't find you. So they left. I'm like, what do you mean a Tesla? I did not pay enough for a Tesla. I was expecting a Honda Civic or something like that. I was not ready for that. So then they say, you can get there. You just have to go to this train station, and the train will leave in like 20 minutes. You've got to sprint there, and then they'll take you to another train station and do another one into a bus, and then the bus will drive you there, and you'll be perfectly fine. So I'm like, okay, Taylor. So we sprint to the train station. We hop to the next train. We get to this bus stop, and the bus driver's like, no, you don't have tickets for this bus. And I start like begging, I'm like, please, sir. I want to be a good husband. I really want to get, I'm, like, I'm literally begging. That's not an exaggeration. And he's like, okay. If you tell anyone that this bus is how you got to Harry Potter World, I will destroy you. Don't you dare. So I'm like, okay, we sneak in the back and we get to Harry Potter World. Problem is, though, we had wasted hours. And now there's only a little bit of time for us to go on this tour. And our pickup car would be there. The studio tour was fun, but it wasn't all it could have been because we had to hurry our way through. Because we didn't have as much time as we'd like. So we were kind of rushing around the whole morning and rushing around that whole trip. And maybe you can relate. Maybe you felt a little rushed in life. Maybe you've been focused on getting things done that you fail to stop and enjoy life. Maybe on a bigger scale, you just kind of always feel hurried. Or maybe you feel crippled by anxiety. There's, there's never enough time in the day. Maybe you feel overwhelmed. In the middle of this very, very hurried world, I think we have an ache to slow down, to experience life, to be void of anxiety. Anxiety is rapidly on the rise day in and day out, specifically with college students. It comes from just rushing and rushing and rushing, but we want to be still, but do we ever do it? Do you ever stop to smell the roses? Do you ever get up nice and early, giving yourself plenty of time to read the Bible and then pray for a long time, worship Jesus, take a leisurely stroll to class because you left with plenty of time. You stop, you get a nice cup of coffee, you smell it, you're like, that's got a floral note, and you get really weird about it. And then you show up to class 10 minutes early, you get a nice seat, and you just are prepared for it. Is that your story? Is it your story that when you have to go somewhere, you leave with plenty of time so you can drive the speed limit and not break the law? And you don't have to be worried while you're driving about cops popping out and giving you a ticket because you're going to be speeding. Is that your story? Is your story a life of unhurry? Probably not. 
more likely than not, your reality sounds like taking at least 18 credits so you can graduate early and get on with your life and get out of here. You also work a part-time job so you can pay your bills and shop at Lululemon because you got to look good. This also probably looks like having leadership positions, whether that's in Chi Alpha or in a different club or organization. On top of this, you want to go home and see your family, so you do that a few times a month. You have to do homework. You want to make time for small group, and if you're not in a small group, make time for small group. It's going to change your life. Go find someone with a name tag. They'd love to get you connected. Anywho, we'll keep going. You also got to spend time with your other friends. You also either have a significant other, so you are spending time with them, being there for them, going on date nights, or you're single and you really want a significant other, so you have to make time to try to find your soulmate, which in reality doesn't look like talking to people because that's a little scary. So it's like just sitting in my bed dreaming about that Mr. or Mrs. Right, and you just waste time like thinking, I'm going to do it. Never coming to the point where you're going to actually start a conversation, but dreaming about it. Don't worry. We'll get there in a few weeks when we talk about dating. That'll be fun. <laughs> oh, fun. You also want to volunteer to build your resume. You want to be healthy, so you try to find time to work out. You also need time to relax because you're so busy and burnt out. You catch yourself spending too much time on Netflix or TikTok because you're just too tired to do anything else when you get home. You also want to have a real devotional life, so you try to sneak in four minutes of Bible reading on your phone before you go to bed so you can check off your religious duty checklist. And finally, sometimes you babysit inside for funsies. See, our generation is defined by hurry. Busyness, rushing, doing, achieving, anxiety. Busyness is seen as a badge of honor. Whenever you ask someone how they're doing, they're like, oh, you know, I'm just busy every time. I want you to imagine something. If you ask someone how they're doing, and you're like, you know what? I had a lot of free time. I've just been peaceful with God, just enjoying his presence. Everyone would think they're a crazy person, and we'd all be silently judging them as they said it. See, free time. Who has time for that, Right? Well, Jesus did. In a world where you couldn't go on Amazon to do all your shopping, where you had to work all day to make sure there was food on the table, Jesus lived a very slowed down, unhurried life. Our story we read tonight gives us a glimpse of this. See, Jesus' disciples, his followers, they're worried. Jesus had done a couple miracles, and he was starting to make a name for himself. This was his chance to be famous to make his mark on the world. He had a TikTok that went slightly viral, and if he capitalized and made the perfect next TikTok, oh, boom, he's taken off. And they're a little worried. They're like, hey, Jesus, what are we going to do next? So they get up ready for the next big day of God moving, and they can't find Jesus. And without him, they couldn't do any of this on their own. He was the main attraction, yet he was gone. So they start frantically looking for him, and eventually they find him in a desolate place. A desolate place is a place that's deserted, empty of people, lacking comfort. Why in the world, when Jesus was at the precipice of a world-changing ministry and fame coming, why... During game time, was he in the middle of nowhere by himself? Because Jesus was unhurried. He wasn't anxious, and he, was, he cared way more about who he was becoming, who he was being formed into, rather than what he was doing. Jesus cared more about his being than his doing. Being means Jesus cared about being with God, being with himself, being formed to look like God. Doing is about achieving, getting things done. We live in a world where the main goal is doing. But for Jesus, his main goal is being. Society says we need to hurry up, accomplish, and do, while Jesus says we're called to slow down, love, and be. This idea comes from a book by a guy named Pete Scazzaro called Emotionally Healthy Discipleship. In this book, Pete gives us a test to see if we are prioritizing being or doing. So I want you guys to think through these questions on your own, in your head. Don't say it out loud. Do you ever struggle to shake the pressure from having too much things to do in too little time? Are you concerned with what other people think of you? Are you fearful about your future? Are you always rushing? 
Are you defensive? Are you distracted? If so, you might be prioritizing doing over being. And hear me, doing things, that's an important thing. Just sitting around like a sack of potatoes is not the key to the good life. Jesus is not calling you to be like, um, and not do anything all day. No, he's calling you to make disciples who make disciples. He's calling you to love people. He's calling you to serve this campus. He's calling you to be the best friend you can be. See, Jesus, after he was in this desolate place with God, he went out and did his calling. He preached. He proclaimed the gospel. But he didn't do it until he was first being with God. Our society is so focused on what we accomplish that we forget the important thing, which is being with Jesus. Being with Jesus practically means doing things like the spiritual disciplines we've talked about all first semester. So what was Jesus actually doing in this desolate place? He was praying to God. He was reading his Bible. We could be praying, worshiping. These are the practices we need to do to connect with God and be with him. Those are great first steps. You should all have a daily time where you're praying, reading the Bible, and being with God, preferably at the beginning of your day. This is like a quiet time or a devotional time, and it's the foundation of our being with God. But it's more than just this. We're called to think about God throughout our day. This might look like setting aside multiple times throughout your day where you're with God. It's this practice called the daily office. It comes from like an idea of like office hours your professors have, where there's time daily where you can come meet with them. You should have office hours with God. So maybe you start your morning spending time with Jesus, reading the Bible, praying, and then at noon, maybe you pray for one minute through the Lord's Prayer. And maybe in the evening you pray for 10 minutes before bed so you have different launch points with God. Because the point of our life is to be centered on God throughout the whole day, living a prayerful life. It's more than just having a quick devotional life or to commune with God all day if you're a Jesus follower. However, we don't stop with just being with God. We are also called to be with ourselves. And this is where things get a little interesting. Being with ourselves looks like thinking through our actions reflecting on why we do the things we do, getting to know ourselves, and specifically, getting to know what's called our false selves. Our false self is our self outside of God. This can be called like our shadow side or maybe sinful nature because here's reality. Reality is we think we have things going on in our hearts that aren't great. We have things going on that we won't quite understand until we start to think deeply about why we do the things we do. Example of this in my own life growing up is when I was growing up, I placed a lot of value in looking like I had nice things. I thought my parents have a lot of money, then I'll be loved. So when I turned 16, my parents were actually struggling financially, and my older siblings, I have four of them, they all got nice cars when they turned 16. I thought they were the coolest people in the world. I turned 16, and my parents were struggling. So I got a real junky 1998 Mercedes Sable that made weird noises and weird smells, and that was my car. And see, I didn't like this. I thought people were going to look down on me. So I lied to my peers, and I told them, hey, that's just my winter car. I've got a really nice car in the garage. It's just waiting for springtime to come out. Then I'm going to be high rolling. Why the heck did I do that? That's idiotic. It's because my shadow side or my false self, my sinful nature told me that I need to act like I had things in order to be loved. I didn't recognize that in that season as a 16-year-old, I promise you. I was just like, I want my car, dang it. And this time, though, this past year, I spent time focusing on myself being with God, thinking about why I do the things I do, and I started to realize these things about my personality. It looks like feeling our feelings. We live in a world that tells us to shove our emotions down, but God gave you emotions in order to be felt. If you're sad, that's okay, just process why. If you're angry, that's okay, just process why. 
The key to spirituality or life with God is not acting like you're perfect and have it all together. The key to life with God is recognizing the sinful things inside of you and processing why they're there to try to be formed into the image of God. The key to following Jesus is not just ignoring everything and not processing it. No, it's processing your life in a healthy way. You are called to be you, but just with God infused inside of it. So in essence, being before doing looks like slowing down enough to be with God, to pray, contemplate, read scriptures, and to be with ourselves, to think about our behaviors, our motivations, in order to grow into our true self as a son or daughter of Jesus. Being before doing, it looks like slowing down. Slowing down enough to eliminate hurry. Because this idea of hurry, you're running fast and going, going, going. Hurry is the great enemy of the spiritual life. It's really challenging to have a thriving relationship with God while also living a life of incessant hurry. Corey Tenboom, who is a Jesus follower, wrote a book called The Hiding Place about her time when she was in a concentration camp in Nazi Germany. This is what she says. If the devil can't make you sin, he will make you busy. Busyness distracts us from the things of God and pulls us from being formed into his image. See, hurry is really born out of being distracted. It's us getting distracted by many things. We're often too distracted to have a deep spiritual life. And if I'm honest with you, this happens to me all the time. For example, i got a sin to confess. Sometimes during morning prayer at 7 a.m. in the CAC on Thursday morning when I'll see you all there, sometimes though when I'm there, I get a little distracted, and I catch myself looking in the corner, thinking, wow, Ethan Scott's new long hair is looking really nice today. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> amen, amen. That's good. That's one of our students. You should meet him after service if you haven't met him. He is very handsome. But anyways, so I'm just processing that, then I'm realizing, wait, I should be praying right now because it's morning prayer. And then I come back to it, but I get distracted. See, I used to get super distracted when I was spending time with Jesus in the morning. I'd get distracted well, by my phone. Actually, our phone is the number one thing that distracts us in life. Study shows that the average iPhone user picked up their phone 2,617 times a day. So now, when I spend time with Jesus, to avoid that, I leave my phone in a different room and put it on Do Not Disturb and don't go touch it. So for those of you that live in a dorm, you're like, I don't have a different room. It's one tiny room that I'm with another person. You can put your phone on Do Not Disturb and put it in a drawer. Because I promise you, it's okay to not be with your phone for an hour. So I encourage you, when you're spending time with Jesus, reading the Bible, when you're praying, put your phone somewhere else. Because or else, if you're like me, you're going to get distracted. Like, oh, ESPN. Oh, I didn't see you there. 20 minutes later, oh, I'm supposed to be reading Mark. Here we go. Back to Jesus. Distractions, things like Instagram, video games, TV shows, TikTok, they take our attention off of God and they put it on other things. John Mark Comer in his book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, says it this way, attention is the beginning of devotion. Worship and joy start with the capacity to turn our mind's attention towards the God who's always with us in the now. As apprentices of Jesus, this is our main task and the focus of the devil's stratagem against us. Our main job as Jesus followers is to be formed into his image. And the only way that will happen is if we give him our attention. If our attention is given to something else, something like your significant other, you'll be formed by your significant other to be like them. If you give your attention to a TV show, that's going to form you. So if you want to be formed to be more like Jesus, if you just had a great winter conference and you had a spiritual high, and now you're like, wait, how do I keep this going? The way you do this is through putting your attention on Jesus. You can't fall in love with something you never pay attention to. And as we give our attention, that'll turn to devotion, which will turn to formation. 
In Chi Alpha, we have three pillars or like three things we stand on. And number one is real devotion. Real devotion is being intentionally intimate with Jesus through abiding daily, which basically means we think the key to following Jesus is having intimacy with him. And intimacy only comes from devotion, which only comes from attention. So we cannot expect to be formed to look like God if we never spend time with him. If we're always focused on our doing rather than our being, if we're always distracted, we won't look like Jesus. See, a common thing is we think following Jesus or Christianity is just about following a set of rules. And let's be honest, what's the point in that? Maybe you're here and you haven't had a relationship with Jesus. Maybe you grew up going to church, you came to college and you thought, I'm going to explore something different because you're just asking yourself the honest question, I don't get why. Why do I follow Jesus? See, that comes from a doing-based relationship with Jesus where I do things for him and then he'll love me. What's the point in that? Instead of a being relationship with Jesus, where God loves me no matter what I do, I don't have to earn it, and I just get to be with him. And as we get intimacy, we'll get joy from our life with Jesus. That's what makes following Jesus worth it. When we get distracted, we don't give Jesus our attention, we won't be intimate with him. And Christianity without intimacy with Christ is like raising Cain's chicken without cane sauce. It's missing the best part. So maybe if you're honest, over break, you got a little distracted. Excuse me. Maybe you got distracted. Oh my gosh. Let's try that again. Hmm. Well, that was embarrassing. My voice cracked. I felt like a 16-year-old again. Going through puberty. I thought I passed that. Anyways, maybe over winter break you got a little distracted and you felt spiritually dry. And then winter conference happened, and now you're excited again. But how do you keep this intimacy? How do you stay on fire? Or maybe you didn't go to winter conference and you're feeling a little left out. You're like, I just didn't get to have that experience. How am I going to keep running like Jesus? Or maybe this is your first time in Kyle at all, and you're not even sure what a relationship with Jesus looks like. See, the key to all of that is to have intimacy with God and put our attention on Him. See, the reason conferences are so effective is because we spend a whole weekend putting our attention into Jesus and not giving in to distractions. We eliminate distractions, and that births intimacy. Being with God helps limit the hurry in our lives, and this is important because it is hard to hurry and love. I want you guys to picture something for me. Take you on a little trip. Go back to 2012. And I, some of you are like, I wasn't born yet. Just kidding. You're all born that time. Go back to 2012, and I want you to imagine that you are a mom. This might be weird. There's like the man in the beard like, I'm never going to be a mom. It's okay. We've all got a mom inside of us. So imagine you're a mom who has three kids that you want to get the best Christmas gifts for. But you're also on a tight budget. So like, you know what? I'm about to kill Black Friday. And you think that is the key to your kid's happiness. And see, you know Target and Walmart, they open at 8 p.m. on Thursday night, which is Thanksgiving, by the way. Oh, quick reminder about you mothers. Your in-laws and your parents and your three siblings with their families and children, they're all coming over for Thanksgiving. So you got to get up at like 6 a.m. on Thanksgiving Day and you get right to work. You jump out of bed, you head to the kitchen, you start cooking stuff. You're like flipping pancakes, no, not pancakes for Thanksgiving. You're like carving a turkey or whatever. I've never cooked a meal in my life, so I don't know what that looks like. But you're cooking. Two hours later, you're still cooking, and you realize, my kids are not up yet. So you go and yell at them, Billy, Bobby, and Joe, get up! And you like start banging on their doors, like, get up and go clean, because no one's cleaned your house. It's a pigsty. And then you go back to the kitchen, you start cleaning, an hour passes by, and then you realize you've not heard your kids yet, so you go back, and they're still asleep. So then you try to wake them up, but that's not working super well, so you frantically clean your house while you're cooking with another hand, and you're like also like doing your hair with a third hand that you grew. And so you're just trying to make life go. 
You're running around the house, you're cooking, cleaning, and yelling, trying to get yourself ready. You're not being very thankful, which is the point of Thanksgiving, but that's besides the point. We won't judge you today. And then your family that you don't necessarily enjoy a whole lot shows up. Okay, you know in the back of your head, you got to get them in and out of here by like 5.30 because you got to be in line by 6 and you need at least two seconds to calm down and then drive to the store. So you scarf down like a whole turkey in your mouth. You like yell at your family to offend them so they leave earlier. And then they leave, you run to the store and the line is already huge. When you finally get into the store, you're on a mission to get those toys. So you like hip check some elderly lady, your stiff arm and teenagers like get out of here and you run to your toy. And as you're running to it, someone accidentally bumps into you and you trip. You look back. I have a question for you. In that moment, do you think you'll respond with love, kindness, and joy? Or, you're like, spawn of Satan, how dare you? You'll be pure rage in that moment. Do you think it's easy in moments of hurry and stress to be a loving person? See, let us see, how does Paul, the guy who wrote a lot of the New Testament, how does he describe love? Well, godly love is described as patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable. Hurry and this kind of love seem to not go together very well. I would say this form of love is the antithesis of our angry Black Friday mom. Our two main commandments as followers of Jesus are to love God and to love people. And I think hurrying around makes both those things very hard. When we focus on doing, on just accomplishing our goals and getting things done, it's hard to be patient and kind. So clearly, we recognize that being is the healthier way to go. But then why, time and time again, do we give in to this temptation of hurry and put our focus on doing things maybe for God or for ourselves before being with God? I think it boils down to our identity. I think many of us here, if we're honest with ourselves, we place our worth or we think we're only valuable or loved not because we're a son or daughter of Jesus, but rather we think we're loved because of what we accomplish. We feel we're valued because of what people around us think about us. We think we have to be liked at all costs. See, I think sometimes we believe the lie that we're only loved because of our performance or our latest accomplishment, that our value comes from our doing, that our identity is not in who we are, but rather in what we do. For example, maybe you find your value in getting good grades and having a lot of money, and having a nice savings account, and your parents liking you, and having a lot of friends, and being cool, being the good small group leader, and being the good Christian. You think you're loved because you've done the good things. Maybe you think that if you screwed up, or if you got a B, if you didn't make the top band, if someone disagreed with you or didn't like you, if your parents were disappointed in you, maybe if you give into a dark sense temptation, maybe it's easy to believe, then you are a failure and you're worthless. We feel a crushing weight to protect this false image of ourselves where we think we're perfect or we want to be perfect or think it's possible to be perfect. So we put all of our energy into achieving things at the neglect of who we're becoming. See, a good test to know if you struggle with doing over being is one of the questions the author asked us. Are you defensive? Are you defensive when people confront you? Is it hard to admit when you come up short or make a mistake? Do you find yourself defending your actions when you're confronted? Do you feel a deep need to explain yourself every time someone says you've done something wrong? See, defensiveness comes from the need to protect our image, that we have to prove we are worthy of love through our perfection. So if someone points out a flaw in me, they're not just saying what I did was bad, they're saying I am bad and I have no worth. 
So when, challenge, when someone challenges this image in us, we are cut deeply. And so then one of two things happen, fight or flight. We either fight and we defend ourselves, we get mad, we get defensive, we argue with them about why what you did was right because we can never admit failure, or we fly, which means we shove our feelings down. And we shut down because we want to avoid conflict at all costs. So rather than admitting just, I made a mistake, we just get quiet and try to run from the moment, get me out of here as quickly as possible. Because we don't want to confront the reality that we aren't perfect, nor do we have to be. See, the reason that we do before we be is because we think, if I don't do, if I don't accomplish, then who am I? But Jesus, he didn't care about the world's acclaim. Jesus felt no need to prove anything. So instead of earning people's loves, they're doing another miracle in our story tonight. He retreated to a desolate place, and he was with his father. Jesus did this because he cared more about what God thought of him than what people thought of him. So I challenge you to ask yourself, whose opinion matters most to you? God's? Or your parents? Or your friends? Or the people around you? It's okay if you get a B. It's okay if your resume isn't perfect. It's okay if your parents are disappointed in you. It's okay if you're not the perfect Chi Alpha member. God loves you not because of what you do, but because of who you are. And you are his son or his daughter. And he just wants you to be with him. So the way we apply this idea is through our schedules. We practically prioritize being with God before doing things for him. This looks like spending time with him. This looks like reading your Bible. This looks like doing things like sitting in silence before God. I highly encourage you, if you've never tried that. It's an idea where you just sit in silence for like a minute or two. You don't sit there for 30 minutes unless you're really spiritual and want to. I'm not that spiritual. I never like hover or anything like that. So you just sit there and you set like a one or two minute timer and you just sit in silence before God and you try to hear his voice. If you get distracted, that's okay. You just say, Jesus, I love you. Say a short prayer, bring yourself back. And you sit in silence as a way of practically slowing down. Another practice you can do is this thing called Sabbathing. Sabbathing is an ancient practice that God gave to the Old Testament people back a long time before Jesus, where he said, you need to set aside one day a week to not work and to just be with God. It's a practice where you don't work, you don't do chores, you just rest and you worship God. For us now, this looks like setting aside a 25-hour period during your week where you don't work, you don't do schoolwork, you don't go and do chores, you spend time with Jesus, you play, you read, take a nap, commune with God, because the world will go on without you. You don't need to be doing for your value. Sometimes you can just be. So the easiest thing for most of you, this is my practical takeaway for you, is to decide that on Saturday nights at dinner time, until Sunday nights at dinner time, you're going to what's called Sabbath, which means you're going to set aside that 24 hours and not focus on working or doing. You're just going to be with God. You're going to pray, read the Bible, hang out with your small group, delight in God, rest, and eliminate hurry. If you have questions about this idea, talk to your small group leader. I think many of us, if we're honest, we're like, this seems like a lot of things to do. How am I supposed to get up in the morning in time with Jesus, hang out with him three times a day, think about him all day, then sit in silence and what am I doing? I'm going to get distracted. Like, how can I give 24 hours a week to God? I think many of us think we don't have the time, but John Orberg says this, hurry is not just a disordered schedule, it is a disordered heart. We all have 24 hours a day. It's up to us to what we prioritize. Do we prioritize taking extra credits so we can graduate early? Do we prioritize working extra 
So we have money to go out to eat and buy nice clothes and go to concerts and live the dream. Or do we prioritize maybe working a little less or taking one less class so we have time to be with God? Everyone in here has time to have a devotional life with Jesus and to slow down and be with God. It's just up to you to prioritize that. The main idea tonight is we are called to be before we do. Sounds nice, right? But logically, well, logically, life should be all about doing. American culture tells us that we need to fight and claw to get our way to the top. American culture tells us that we need to work hard, and if we do, we can accomplish our dreams. And this makes practical sense, except in the kingdom of God. See, here's the beauty of Jesus. See, Jesus saw each of us, and he knew that we would not have the ability to work hard enough to earn God's love. He knew that you and I could never be good enough for the love of God. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You have fallen short of what you should be doing as a follower of Jesus. But this is where the beauty of King Jesus comes in, is because he saw us in this moment of failure. He saw us not having the ability to earn it. And he said, If you can't do enough, then I'll do it for you. And Jesus saw us in our sin, and he decided, I'm going to give my life so that you and I can have life with God. And so Jesus came and he lived a perfect life, being with the Father, being unhurried. And then he died on a cross for our sins. If you've grown up in America, you've heard that before. But I think sometimes we don't let that sink in. The God of the universe came as a baby. He lived a perfect life, and he loved you enough that he gave everything just for you. So then we don't have to find our worth in what we do. Jesus is the key to freedom. Jesus is the key to rest. Jesus is the key to being before doing. So what do we have to do? Because there is one part we need to play. So if you're here tonight, and you've never accepted this payment from Jesus, and if you're honest with yourself, you feel like either A, maybe you've just been running from God. Maybe you've never really cared about Jesus and you've ran away from him, but you've been feeling like maybe there's more. There's a reason you're here tonight. If you're here and you don't follow Jesus, you're either here for one of two reasons, probably a combination. One, you got drugged here by a friend, or you're here because you recognize in this new year that maybe something's missing and you gotta try something. That something is Jesus because then he makes it so we can rest with him. Or maybe you're here and you've been following Jesus, but if you're honest, you still feel like every day you're trying to earn his love, that you've never accepted him as your father and said you look to him as like your dictator. When Jesus is looking at you and saying, my son or my daughter, will you quit trying to work for me and will you be with me? He doesn't need you to run the family business. He just needs you to be his kid. And that looks like being with God before doing and the only way we can do that is if we recognize that our value is not in what we do. When you get to eternity with Jesus, Jesus is not going to ask for a copy of your report card. He's not going to ask, how much money did you make? He's just going to say, were you with me? And I think for many of us, when we get to eternity, we'll look back with a slight amount of regret and say, ah, I wish I would have spent more time with Jesus. But then we'll have so much joy as the grace of God overwhelms us. I think some of us are here tonight, and if we're honest, we're tired. 
Maybe you've hurried, you've worked, and you've ran around your whole life. Maybe as a Christian, you've done that and you've tried to earn it. Or maybe just in general as a human being, you've been worrying and running around. Maybe I feel like a lot of us might struggle with anxiety from this thought that I can never get enough done. There's not enough time in the day. And see, Jesus is looking at you and he's not mad at you, but he's saying, will you go ahead and stop? Because doing before being or trying to earn our salvation actually comes from a lack of trust in God. When we feel like we have to earn God's love, we're saying the work of Jesus on the cross wasn't good enough and I have to do things to accomplish it. And that's just not reality. Reality is Jesus loves you right where you're at. And he's got a beautiful plan for your life if you'll just trust him. So if you've grown up believing that the only way you'll be loved is through your accomplishment, you'll think you'll have to earn everything. And tonight, Jesus is asking to surrender this idea, to quit believing the lie that your worth is in your work. Only through focusing on being with God can we start to be formed into his image. Tonight, we need to commit to being with God, making him a priority and resting in his presence. And if we do this, we will feel so free. Because having to perform all the time is really crushing, right? I want you to imagine a big boulder. And every time we feel like we have to work for God, it's us picking up this boulder and putting it on our backs. But see, Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus never put that burden or that boulder of performance on you. We picked it up and put it there ourselves. Jesus is asking you to throw that away and to rest with him. And if we do this, if we choose to take this stone off our back, we'll be free with God. We'll be so full of peace. We'll get to rest with him and we'll start to be more formed into the image of Jesus. You could all stand with me. I want to give us two ways to respond tonight, just like we do every week at Chi Alpha. And so I'm going to ask you two questions. So the first question is for those of you who do not have a relationship with Jesus, or maybe you ran away from Jesus. Maybe this is your first time here tonight. Maybe you're at UNI, first semester, you never got plugged into a community of Jesus followers. Maybe you just transferred. And maybe you've been running from God. I want to give you an opportunity to turn back to God. Because see, as we've ran away from God, he's been right behind us the whole time chasing us. That's the beauty. It's not like we have to turn around and run 10 miles back to Jesus. All you have to do tonight is turn around and King Jesus will be right there waiting for you. So if that's you, I'd like everyone to close your eyes, bow your heads. And if you're here tonight and you haven't accepted Jesus as Lord, if you ran away from him and you want to come back to him, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand on the count of three, not because people are looking around or anything like that, but actually as an outward symbol to God of what's happening inside your hearts. So if that's you and you want to return to Jesus or give your life to Jesus for the first time on the count of three, raise your hand. One, two, three. Thank you. Thank you. Let me pray for you. Jesus, we love you. Jesus, thank you for taking our penalty for our sins, Thank you for paying the price for our imperfections and being so good. We love you so much. Amen. Second question is if you're here tonight and you've been following Jesus, and if you're honest, you've been doing a lot of doing at the neglect of your being, and you've thought you've had to earn it, what I'm going to ask you to do is to put your hands like this as a sign of surrender to God. I'm going to pray over us. Then we're going to go back into this worship song. And I challenge you to just release that to God and let him take over. Jesus, we love you. Thank you so much for 
being so good that we don't have to worry about doing it, but we can just be with you, King Jesus. Jesus, I pray that this semester is a semester where Chi Alpha runs after you, but we also rest in you. We love you so much.